Please be seated. Our speaker tonight is Keith Whitaker. Professor Whitaker teaches in the Department of Philosophy at Boston College. He has been assistant to the Chief of Staff in the President's Office at Boston University and is responsible for the publication of many fine translations, a number of them by St. John's Tutors. He founded and is series editor of the Focus Philosophical Library. He founded and is series co-editor of the Focus Political Library. And he is series co-editor of the Focus Classical Library. He himself contributed the fine translation and introduction for the Focus edition of Plato's Parmenides. He has also written a number of papers on Plato's last and longest dialogue, The Laws. His lecture tonight is entitled, How Shall I Live? Plutarch's Timolian and Aemilius. Please welcome Keith Whitaker. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dean Flamenhoff, and thank you all of, all of you for joining me tonight to talk about these lives. Um, I wanted to just say that uh, I still vividly remember uh, the day about 12 years ago when I got a St. John's bulletin in the mail in the time I was a junior looking for colleges, and I still vividly remember saying, great books, why would I want to do that? One of the most <laughs> unwise decisions of my life, although uh, I suspect I wasn't ready for St. John's then, and so now I'm very thankful for uh, being admitted to your company, at least for a night. Now, uh, my subject tonight, uh, as Dean Flamenhoff said, is Plutarch's Lives. Now, each of Plutarch's lives contains a short introduction. And the introduction to the pair, Timoleon and Aemilius, is especially important, for it explains the purpose of Plutarch's lives as a whole. For someone who almost never speaks about himself, Plutarch is surprisingly personal in this introduction. He explains, as he says, that viewing the lives of these two men, or viewing the lives of the men that he writes of in the lives, living with them, so to speak, day by day, allows him to adorn his own life by drawing it near to their virtues. By reading and writing history, he receives into his soul the memories of the best and most famous men, and thus turns his understanding towards the most noble of models. And he asks, what could be more joyful and more efficacious for the improvement of one's character? Now, not many people read Plutarch's lives today, maybe present company accepted. The book has enjoyed times of popularity over the past two millennia, but this is not one of them. Those who do read this book do so usually as a historical source. In fact, even thus far, I don't think I've ever met anyone who reads Plutarch's lives with the intention with which he wrote them to improve one's character. Now, Plutarch evidently meant his book to be used not as a history source, but for education. But who today takes his purpose seriously? Now, this disregard is peculiar, but I think not inexplicable. For Plutarch assumes a certain interest in his readers, an interest in virtue. And he assumes readers who are at least open to the possibility that one can draw near virtue by studying the lives of great statesmen and great generals. Now, there are many reasons, I think, why such readers are few and far between today. But certainly one great obstacle, one great obstacle to our taking Plutarch seriously is this, the denial that there is such a thing as human excellence or virtue. The pervasive power of this denial strikes me again and again in my own thinking and also in my conversations with my students. 
just one example that I wanted to share with you. This semester I'm teaching Plato's Laws, a book very dear to my heart. Now our first discussion in class centered on book one, specifically the section where the protagonist, the Athenian stranger, talks about liberal education. I posed this, student, uh, this question for the students to think about. Are you getting a good education at Boston College? Now, one student gave me a response that was striking, not for being unusual, but for being so clear. When I asked this student whether he or not he was getting a good education at Boston College, he said, well, I'm not sure what you mean by a good education. I replied, well, the kind of typical professorial response, I said, well, what I think matters very little. I'd rather hear what you think a good education is and whether you are getting it. And he answered, I don't think there is such a thing as a good education. Education is whatever each person chooses to learn or whatever opinions or life experiences each person has. In fact, I'd say everyone has some sort of education. So I said, education is whatever opinions you've learned. And he said, that's right. I, said, I then asked, so you would say that the most racist, most bigoted, most hateful person is educated because he possesses these racist, bigoted, hateful opinions and that his education is no worse than anyone else's? And this student didn't back down. He said, yes, that's his education, and who's to say it's a bad one? Now, as I said, I don't think that this student's view was particularly unusual, only remarkable for its clarity and perhaps for his persistence. This student, many students, many professors, live today with this same doubt. Is there such a thing as the good education? This student, many students, many professors have gone beyond this doubt into denial, the denial that there can be or that there is one such education. Lurking behind the denial of the possibility of a good education is an even more serious denial, the denial that there is such a thing as the good life, which a good education would lead to. Instead, it is said there are endless possibilities to choose from in, in life. Each one of us makes our choices, and who's to say which choices are good and which are bad, better or worse? This is not just a question, obviously. It's a challenge, a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge which makes simply running back to bow before Plutarch's great men impossible. So this, then, is the question that I pose for myself in my studies. Is there a best way to live? Or to put the same thing slightly differently, is there some criterion or standard accessible to the human mind that would let us distinguish the better, and better ways of life from the worse? It'd be wonderful to ask right from the start, what is the best life? But that, I think, would be to move too fast. That would be to assume that this best life or right way exists. And I don't think we can do that if we want to live with knowledge rather than assumptions. We have to move more slowly. So the question of the criterion or the standard, I think, has to come first. And this question, then, I think, gives at least me a serious reason to return to the study of Plutarch's lives. Our starting point, my starting point, is to simply observe Plutarch's judgments about right or wrong, better or worse. But I want to do that in order to learn, if possible, what his criterion of judgment is. Does he have such a criterion? accessible to us, accessible to any intelligent human being, no matter where or when he lives? Or are Plutarch's judgments grounded in nothing more than his own peculiar opinion? I have to note, then, that as much as I respect Plutarch, not even I can turn to his book with simply the same intention in mind as he expresses in the introduction that I quoted. I do want to see the lives that he considers most noble. I do want to get to know the human beings that he considers best. I would certainly like to improve my character, as he says, as he tried to do. But before I can do any of those things with confidence, I have to ask whether or not Plutarch points us towards a convincing standard or criterion of judgment, and if so, what is that standard? So, where to begin? 
Obviously, I'm not going to try to talk about all the lives, um, as the title of the lecture in indicates. Instead, I'm going to focus on one pair of lives, the lives of Timoleon and Amelius, two lives that Plutarch himself judges to be exemplary and in which he inserts his statement of purpose for the lives as a whole. Now, before going on to observe closely his judgments about these two, I'll just try to summarize them quickly for your benefit, in case not everyone's read them. Now, Timoleon had a long life, about 70-plus years, stretching much of the 4th century BC. He was born to and raised by a noble family in Corinth. His rise to fame began late in his life, in 346 BC. He was about 60 or so then. When, after a long hiatus from public affairs, he was suddenly nominated by his, by his fellow citizens to take a Corinthian forth, force to Sicily and to relieve the city of Syracuse, which was a Corinthian colony, from long-standing tyrannical rule. Timoleon's success in doing so was nothing short of miraculous. Within a few years, he had freed Syracuse of its tyrants and of a huge invading force of the barbaric Carthaginians. He then repopulated the broken city and gave it firm democratic institutions. What is even more amazing is that he went on to do the same thing for all the other Greek cities in Sicily that were ruled by tyrants. He lived his last few years in a peaceful, prosperous Syracuse, revered as the entire island's second founder. Now, only one episode significantly mars his life. Two decades before sailing to Syracuse, so in about 366 BC, Timoleon helped advance the career of his brother, Timophanes, in the Corinthian military. Now, Timophanes was a violent and arrogant man, and upon his advancement, he seized the city of Corinth as a tyrant. Now, Timoleon tried to persuade his brother to relinquish control, but after persuasion failed, he assisted in the assassination of his own brother. At first, the citizens praised him for his greatness of soul, as Plutarch says. But soon, the dead tyrant's courtiers and Timoleon's own mother branded him as an impious fratricide. This bad reputation drove Timoleon nearly mad. He repented of his noble deed and imposed political exile on himself for 20 years till he was called to sail to Sicily. Now, Aemilius lived from 228 to 160 BC, so 68 years. He was also a great general, a great conqueror, in his life, he rose to the highest offices in Rome, political, military, and religious. As a young and middle-aged man, he reconquered most of Spain and defeated some of the more rebellious Gallic tribes of northern Italy. But his greatest accomplishment was his campaign against Macedonia in 168 BC. In the face of enormous enemy forces, he conquered the kingdom of the descendants of Alexander the Great in less than one month. The gains, military and political, from his campaign were staggering. But Aemilius did not try to profit privately from his conquest. Instead, he led his enormous booty and even the per person of the conquered king, Perseus, in triumph back at Rome. However, this moment of his greatest success was tarnished by bad luck. Aemilius had two sons as his heirs. One died five days before his triumph, the other perished three days afterwards. But though the whole city of Rome grieved for the great general's private loss, he found the strength to comfort his grieving countrymen in a public speech about the ways of fortune. He died a few years later, not only honored by his fellow citizens, but honored even by the people whom he had conquered and made Roman subjects. He died, as Plutarch says, lacking nothing of the things deemed conducive to happiness. Now, as I've noted, and as is pretty obvious from the summary, the two lives are similar in their enormous successes. And Plutarch's judgments follow pretty similarly. But two episodes do, in Plutarch's view, greatly distinguish these two men. 
The first, the way that Timoleon reacted to the bad reputation that followed his aiding and his tyrannical brother's assassination. And the second is the way that Emilius dealt with the death of his two sons at the time of his triumph. Plutarch judges that Emilius, by his conduct, was manifestly more perfect. In this time of great grief, he was, Plutarch says, no smaller nor less dignified than, the times, than in the times of great fortune. Timoleon's grief and repentance, in contrast, shows, as Plutarch says, a decent and pliable character, but certainly not one that possesses greatness. So Plutarch's judgments of the two is thus quite clear. Both are very admirable for many reasons. Nonetheless, Emilius is the greater. His virtue is the more complete, the more perfect. If the improvement of our characters is what we're after, then Emilius is, in this decisive respect, the superior example. Now, before I go on to try to understand Plutarch's judgment, we should observe that this judgment is certainly not the only possible one, nor is it necessarily the most obvious judgment to be made. Now, no doubt, some of us ad would admire Emilius's constancy in the face of fortune and the brave and comforting way he makes sense to his fellow citizens of his son's death. Some of us would probably also pity Timoleon's lack of, const Timoleon's lack of constancy, but still condemn it. But I think it's just as likely that other people would call Emilius's conduct cold or unfatherly. It's just as possible to wonder whether only someone who's lacking something in his soul could triumph, uh, could, uh, could celebrate a triumph after his only sons had died. Obviously, this would not be the conduct of politicians or public figures today, who often seem to treat the public expression of grief as something admirable, and not only them. I think some of us may think that open expression of grief may not only be the popular thing to do, but the right thing to do. Likewise, some people could very well see Timoleon's grief after his brother's death, not as a condemnable deviation from what's right, but as a repentance and a return to a more human or even more just position. After all, what would have Antigone have thought of Timoleon's actions? In short, I think it's quite possible for us to wonder whether or not Plutarch's judgment is completely wrong. So even if our times did not force upon us the question of whether knowledge of how to live is possible, Considerations such as these require that we ask, ask why Plutarch arrives at the judgments that he does. Okay, so let's first look at Plutarch's judgment against Timoleon. Long before we learn about Emilius, long before we even learn about Timoleon's great successes, Plutarch shows us Timoleon's actions surrounding the assassination of his tyrannical brother. So what does Timoleon do wrong? That's the kind of simplest way to approach this. What does he do wrong? Plutarch doesn't cr criticize Timoleon for helping to kill his brother. Plutarch, in fact, doesn't criticize any of Timoleon's actions that precede or accompany the assassination itself. The problem, from Plutarch's point of view, is that Timoleon's subsequent repentance and despair. As Plutarch explains, we should judge an action not only by looking at the action itself, but by looking to the mind of the actor as well. So he says, to quote him, it is not only necessary, so it seems, that an action be noble and just, but also that the opinion, the opinion upon which it is done, be firm and unchangeable. Or as Plutarch puts it even more forcefully, a change of mind makes even the noble deed shameful. That is, for a deed to be noble, it must not only have a certain look, it must be based upon a certain firm mental state, an unchanging opinion, as Plutarch puts it. So then, it would seem, it would be better than it seems if, if Timoleon had slain his brother and never had a second thought about it. So we could say, why does Timoleon come to repent? Plutarch's account makes clear the great power that popular opinion 
has over Timoleon's thoughts. Timoleon does not despair right away, for at the first, Plutarch says, the most powerful Corinthians praise him for his hatred of wickedness and his greatness of soul. But then, as the tyrant's old friends and even Timoleon's mother begin to slander him, as he acquires a reputation as the doer of an impious and unclean deed, only then does Timoleon despair. I think it's clear from these course of events that Timoleon bows to public opinion as an authority over his judgment of what is noble and over his estimation of himself. And I think in this respect, we might condemn him, but we certainly can't be surprised. The authority of public opinion is especially evident in democracy, whether it's ancient Corinth or modern America. How many times have we heard others or even ourselves say that one should trust the judgment of the people in moral matters, or even that there is no higher tribunal in such matters than what people say? Anyone who makes those kinds of pronouncements is, ex is in exactly the same position as Timoleon. And clearly Plutarch doesn't think that this position is a very good one. Okay, but the friend of popular opinion could respond and could ask, well, what else is going to guide Timoleon other than public opinion? Aren't all of our decisions shaped decisively by our societies? Plutarch clearly disagrees. He certainly acknowledges the great power of public praise and blame and the great power of popular words about what is noble and what, or what is base. But he thinks there is a refuge from them or an alternative to them. As Plutarch says, to quote him, decisions, should they not seize upon firmness and force for their actions from reason and philosophy, are easily shaken and moved about by chance praise and blame, being shoved out of their familiar, familiar reasonings. Or as Plutarch says in reference to Timoleon's change of mind, the choice that is advanced from knowledge and reasoning does not change, even should the actions fail. And he gives a few examples there. So what Plutarch is saying is that popular opinion need not be our only guide. So since Timoleon's mind does change, this is proof that he lacks this knowledge or reasoning or philosophy that Plutarch talks about. And that, it seems, would be his failing, or that is his failing. And from this particular case of Timoleon, it's tempting to draw a more general conclusion that according to Plutarch, knowledge is the foundation for true virtue. However, there is a difficulty here. It's a somewhat small point, but I think an important one. The difficulty is this. Plutarch certainly asserts that popular opinion need not be the sole authority over our thoughts and actions. Yet he does say, as I've noted, that for an action to be noble, it must rest upon a certain opinion, unchanging opinion, as he calls it. Now, Plutarch says this about noble actions. He says this right after he says that firm decisions must be based on reason and philosophy, and right before he says that the choice advanced from knowledge and reasoning does not change. And this is a somewhat small point, so I'll just repeat it here. Plutarch has basically a, a little summary in response to Timoleon's repentance. And he first says decisions that are, that are firm must be based on... Um, as he puts it, reason and philosophy. Then he says the noble action is based upon unchanging opinion. And then the third, third case, he says that a choice which is advanced from knowledge and reasoning doesn't change. So is there a contradiction here? What do we make of this apparent vacillation between opinion and knowledge? Moving from, again, reason and philosophy to unchanging opinion to then uh, knowledge and reasoning. I think there are two possible solutions here. 
One solution would be to conclude that the apparent vacillation is only apparent. That is, that what Plutarch means by unchanging opinion is reason, philosophy, or even knowledge. Or, at the very least, that what he's doing is pointing to reason, philosophy, or even some sort of knowledge as the necessary source or foundation of lasting and unchanging opinion that then leads to noble action. But that's, I think, quite clearly problematic. How in the world would knowledge be the source of opinion, even an unchanging opinion? Aren't these two fundamentally different things, opinion and knowledge? So I, I have a second possibility then. A second possibility would be to take Plutarch's specifications, his distinctions, for what they are, to say that, in his view, a firm decision or choice rests on reason or knowledge, while it's noble action that rests upon opinion. That is, it may be that Plutarch is pointing subtly, subtly to an essential conjunction between opinion and nobility. But that would mean that there is a disjunction between knowledge or nobility, or possible disjunction between knowledge and nobility. In other words, if we say that knowledge is the foundation for true virtue or excellence, in Plutarch's view, then I think we should do so, in this understanding, we should do so understanding that excellence is something different from nobility, which is based upon opinion. Now this conclusion that I've, that I've offered here, this possibility, that Plutarch teaches that virtue is something distinct from nobility, is very difficult for me to accept. I, th I find it very difficult to believe. I do, however, have to note that it doesn't directly contradict anything that Plutarch says in introducing his lives, and in introducing these two lives in particular. Obviously, though, negative evidence is not much evidence. And I think it would be kind of silly to claim to know Plutarch's view on such an important matter as the relation between nobility and knowledge on the basis of an ambiguity in three lines, no matter how important they are. Finally, even if it is correct to say that Plutarch thinks that nobility is based only upon opinion and not knowledge, we ourselves would still be a long way from knowing that that's the case. To know that, we couldn't just take Plutarch's word. We'd have to see it for ourselves. So I want us just to hold on to this puzzling hypothesis, hold it on to it as a hypothesis, and turn with it in mind to the apparently more perfect of these two characters, namely to Amelius. Okay then, what, is, what makes Amelius more perfect, as Plutarch calls him? What does he do right, or what does he do well? Well, Plutarch certainly focuses our attention on his conduct surrounding his son's death. And again, of, of his two heirs, one died five days before his father's triumph, the other three days after, and both boys were in their early teens. Now we see in this moment, we see in this moment surrounding his son's death, a conjunction between the heights of success, his triumph before all of Rome, and the depths of sorrow. But I think it's this conjunction in Aemilius's life as a whole, and Aemilius's conduct in the face of great success and great sorrow, that so impresses Plutarch. So that is, Aemilius's constancy in the face of his son's death is really only half the story. Here, I'll quote you Plutarch's judgment in comparing Aemilius with Timoleon. Plutarch says, since just as that body which is by nature able to bear both cold and heat well is stronger than the one which is able to bear only one or the other, so too unmixed vigor and strength belong to that soul which neither does good fortune spoil and elate with hubris, nor do accidents prostrate it. Since that is the case, Amelius is manifestly more perfect, since he was seen in harsh fortune and in the great sorrow surround concerning his children to be not at all smaller nor less reverend than when he was in the midst of good fortune. Wonderful, 
rolling sentence of, that Plutarch uses quite often, that style. Now, Plutarch praises Aemilius not only for his conduct when his sons died, but his conduct during his good fortune as well. The importance of the children's death is that without this sad event, we couldn't have ever been sure whether Aemilius was great only in the face of and because of his great luck. So what Plutarch admires about Aemilius is that he avoids hubris in good fortune and avoids despair in misfortune. He's constant. All right, then we could ask, well, what is the source of this constancy that Plutarch admires? Well, the best places to look and search for an answer to this question are the two moments where Aemilius's fortune is at its best and at its worst. These are the moments when Aemilius would be most likely to become hubristic or the most likely to despair. And happily, at each of these moments, Aemilius offers a speech. And both of his speeches concern the same critical topic, fortune or chance. Perhaps then, Aemilius keeps his head, so to speak, because of his view of fortune and her role in human affairs. And to understand that view, which would be critical to our understanding as constancy, we have to look at these two speeches. Now, one problem, though, we should, I want to note for you from the start. I'm going to flag it for you here. Though these two speeches concern the same subject of fortune, they have very different tones and come to very different conclusions. The first speech Aemilius gives at the height of his success, after he's conquered Perseus in Macedonia. In this speech, he chastens his young officers for being flush with victory. He chastens them, he chastens them by talking about ill hope, an ill hope that's caused by reasoning about fortune and her circuitous ways. He says that especially when he sees the line of Alexander beneath his feet, he concludes that he and they possess no safety in the face of fortune, and so should approach the future humbly, waiting for their bad luck to come. Now the second speech, Aemilius gives to the Roman people after his two sons have died. With it, he comforts them by encouraging them to be confident of the future safety of the city, arguing that the death of his sons has sufficiently placated fortune. So the first speech chastens, the second comforts. The first speech spreads ill hope, the second one spreads confidence. The first warns that human beings have no safety before fortune. The second one, that some, the second one deems that some such safety is possible. So how could, you, think you could say, how could such inconstant reflections or seemingly inconstant reflections be the basis for Aemilius's constancy? That's the problem that I want to flag for us. I want to look at that second speech first, for a reason I'll explain in a moment. This is the speech that Aemilius gives to the Roman people after his triumph and after both of his sons had died. Plutarch says, there was no Roman who did not share Aemilius's grief, and all shuddered at the apparent cruelty of fortune, which mixed such sorrow with joy in Aemilius's house. So, after his so second son's funeral, Aemilius gathers together the Romans to comfort them. The upshot of his speech is this. He says he's always feared fortune as most variable and untrustworthy. She had been very propitious during his entire campaign. He had conquered the Macedonians in less than one month. He brought back enormous booty to Rome. But the more propitious fortune was, the more he feared for some disaster. For, he says, I know that fortune graces human beings with no great thing that is purely good or without nemesis, without divine jealousy, as it's often translated. So, as he returned to Rome, he feared some great evil would strike the city. But instead, the misfortune fell upon his own house. Thus, the greatest danger for him is over, 
and now he deems that fortune will not harm the city. He and his loss have sufficiently satisfied her nemesis. Now this speech, I think, is a, is a masterful production. And it offers a possible explanation for how Amelius keeps constant, especially during this sad time. He claims for himself a knowledge about fortune or chance. What he claims to know is that there is a divine power known as fortune that consciously distributes good and bad to human beings. This power gives us good, but it never gives us only good. Inevitably, it will send us harm as well. And fortune's distributions of good and harm are related, it seems. In fact, the more good fortune, the more good fortune gives us, it seems, the more due we are for harm. And that's why Amelius only really begins to worry when things start going very well. Fortune, in other words, keeps a sort of balance book. And at the end of the day, the balance must even, even out. Those who have received the greatest goods must pay the piper. So, in Amelius's view, according to the speech, after his successes, it was just a matter of who was going to do the paying. He feared that the Romans would have to suffer, since they would be the greatest beneficiaries of his success. But instead, the harm has settled upon him. And for this, he is almost grateful, it seems. The debt to fortune is settled. The Romans get Macedonia and the rest of Greece. Amelius, the conqueror, loses his sons, his heirs. His sons, his familial bliss, are sacrifices to fortune's nemesis. But sacrifices, after all, don't die in vain. Amelia suffers private loss and security for the public good. And so, in Plutarch's very fitting words, Amelius fitted and adorned the mingled circumstances of the present so that the bad things disappeared in the good, and his private affairs were lost sight of in the public ones. Again, I think this speech is a, is a very beautiful one. But there are certainly questions that it forces us to ask. The most important of these questions for us is how does Amelius know all that he claims to know about fortune? How in particular does he know that fortune keeps a balance of good and evil? He speaks of fortune as a daimon, or a deity. Does he know that this variable deity nonetheless obeys certain rules? If so, how does he know that? These are necessary questions, I think. But these questions beg an even more fundamental question. Is the view described in this speech Amelius's own view, simply? Now, Plutarch does conclude this speech by saying, with such lofty and great speeches, Amelius dialogued with the people from an unfeigned and truthful mind. But he also adds here a very rare qualification for him. He adds the qualification, so they say. And he also quite consciously introduces Amelius's speech by saying that Amelius gathered the Roman people into the assembly and spoke to them, not as a man needing comfort himself, but as one comforting. Amelius does not offer this speech to or for himself. It is for the people to assuage their grief. He comforts them clearly by making his suffering look like a sacrifice for the public, i.e., he makes it look as though it's something noble, as something beneficial for the common good, as something, in other words, that he would definitely choose, that is, over public harm. He leads them to exchange their grief, then, for admiration and for pity for him. And he leads them to exchange their grief and sadness for trust in their own good future. And the speech certainly has this intended effect. But I think you have to wonder whether a thoughtful, experienced man like Amelius, when faced with offering comforting words to the people as a whole, in a most public setting, would simply speak his mind. Now, having offered that suspicious comment, 
I'm sure some of you have heard the kind of joke about the paranoid person. The paranoid person goes to his shrink and the shrink says, well, you are paranoid, but you're also right. They're out to get you. <laughs> now, I, as I, I said, I, I'm a suspicious person, but I think in this case, Plutarch offers us strong evidence that Aemilius' speech to the Roman populace does not accurately represent his whole view of fortune. So to clarify our understanding of Aemilius' view of fortune, and hence his constancy that Plutarch admires, we need to turn to that other speech, the one that he gives at the moment of his greatest success. Now, if ever Aemilius was going to despair, he would have done so after his son's untimely deaths. Likewise, if, Emil if ever Aemilius were going to succumb to hubris or to arrogance, he certainly would have done so after conquering Perseus, the king of Macedonia, the last descendant of Alexander the Great, last kingly descendant of Alexander the Great. But instead, after receiving Perseus as a prisoner, Aemilius returns to his tent and, and with his young officers, some of his family members, and he does something very odd, very unlike him. He sits silently for a long time, thinking. And then, as Plutarch says, he suddenly begins to dialogue with them, with these young officers and other, other young men, begins to dialogue with them about fortune and human affairs. And this is what he says. Aemilius wonders, what lesson is a conqueror to take from his conquest? Should he become bold and proud? Or should he learn from the change of fortune, especially the change that occurs to the conquered, that man is weak and that nothing lasts? Aemilius clearly offers the second as the lesson for his young friends. And he asks in conclusion, do you think that we possess any enduring safety before fortune or for any time? Oh, young men, cast away your empty boasting and your pride of victory, and be humble towards the future, always looking forward to that time when at last the daimon will launch against you her nemesis for your present prosperity. Now, Emilius, again, is at the height of success here. So what explains these cutting remarks, as Plutarch calls them? Aemilius, I think, is, is thinking something like this. The conqueror usually puffs himself up with great thoughts and boasts. Maybe Aemilius knows this by experience. Maybe he himself was thinking such thoughts after defeating Perseus's armies. In entirely believable. But the conqueror takes pride only because he looks, to, only, because he looks only to himself. His gaze is foolishly limited according to Aemilius' speech. For the conqueror is as such the conqueror of the conquered, and the conquered refe reveals to all who look an example of human weakness. The very act of conquest, then, forces the conqueror to observe the weakness of mankind. The conquered has undergone a change of fortune, according to the speech. He was not always the conquered. In fact, he or his forebearers were once conquerors, in this particular case, the conquered, Perseus, is the descendant of the greatest conqueror of all, Alexander. Thus, it seems, the experience of conquest reveals the greatest change of fortune, or the immense and inescapable power that fortune has over all of human affairs. And this is the, the thrust of Amelius' speech. When Alexander or his descendants cannot stand up against fortune, what are the rest of us to hope for? So Amelius concludes that his young officers should be humble, expecting the turn of the wheel themselves. Now, clearly, I think this, this speech offers a less comforting view of fortune than the later, more public one. In particular, this speech, the one he spoke before his officers, does not indicate that there is any possibility that sacrifice 
may help ensure good fortune or good hope. Fortune's wheel turns, and those who were favored soon languish and vice versa. Perseus' fall, the fall of this king Perseus, is not a payment for Alexander's past greatness, nor it seems would any sacrifices have ensured Perseus's continued prosperity. If there were any human thing that should have endured against time, it would have been the kingdom of Alexander. If there were any human thing that should have withstood fortune, it would have been Alexander's line. Later, Aemilius may try to comfort the Romans about the future, but he must know that they too possess no safety in the face of fortune, according to his earlier speech. He may make it sound as though his sons died as sureties for, for, for Rome's good fortune, but he must also know that no such guarantees can be bought. However, I think there is also something curious or unsatisfying about this chastening speech that he gives to his young officers about fortune. And here I'll try to explain what, what the unsatisfying thing is, at least in my view. The crux of his speech seems to be that conquest, and the fate of the conquered in particular, show, reveals to all who can see the inescapable power of fortune over all human affairs. But is this true? Is this really true? After all, was fortune the sole cause of Perseus's defeat, for example? It certainly doesn't seem so from, from the life. As Plutarch notes at length, Aemilius had a lot of luck, but he also made many prudent decisions. Conversely, Perseus may have had some bad luck, but he also made many foolish decisions. And what is more striking is that Aemilius knows this too. Aemilius knows this about his conquest over Perseus, that it wasn't entirely up to luck. And it, I could show this in this way. Consider what happened right before Aemilius's chastening speech to his young officers. Aemilius has utterly defeated Perseus on the field in only a few weeks. And finally, his men have taken Perseus, the king, prisoner. Now, Perseus, the fallen king of Macedonia, begs to see Aemilius, his conqueror. Aemilius is in tears when Perseus enters the room. Why is he in tears? Well, Plutarch says he pities Perseus. He pities Perseus because he thinks that Perseus as, is a great man who nonetheless could not have escaped his fall, who fell undeservedly. That's why he feels this pity. He sees undeserved suffering. In, in Aemilius's mind at this moment, Perseus could have es perhaps escaped conquest if he were up against a merely human foe, like Aemilius. But Aemilius thinks, probably on the basis of the extreme ease of his campaign, that nemesis, or bad luck, was out to get Perseus. So it's a pitiful thing to see the mighty, or even especially the mighty, fallen by chance. It reminds us of human weakness, our own weakness, in the face of chance. So all this to explain Aemilius' pity when he sees Perseus come into the room. However, once Perseus comes into the room, he falls, as Plutarch says, flat on his face, and he grovels before Aemilius. And here, Aemilius' pity turns to anger. And you can say, well, why does he get angry? Why this sudden change of emotion? Why get angry at Perseus? Aemilius gets angry that per at Perseus because Perseus has revealed himself not to be a great man who has fallen undeservedly. Now, of course, Aemilius is not angry that Perseus deserved to fall, at least in, in his view. Rather, he's angry because of this. If Perseus is not a great man, then he's a lowly man, or at least a mediocre man. And that means that Perseus is a lowly opponent. Aemilius's anger, in other words, reveals that he wanted, as he says, a noble and worthy opponent. That is, 
He wanted someone that he, Aemilius, could boast, tested his mettle in a great contest. Aemilius's anger reveals that his main concern was not just winning, winning the land or winning the property. His main concern was testing his own virtue in the manliest of, conquests, of contests. So I think all of this is revealed then by Aemilius's pity to begin with, and then his tear, but then his anger. And his anger reveals that he thinks Perseus didn't just fall by chance, that he deserved to fall, but that the, he reveals himself then as a lowly man, not, not worthy to have fought against a Roman, as Aemilius puts it. And that causes Aemilius to become angry for a moment there. Now, there is, however, a problem in, in Aemilius's anger, and I think Aemilius sees this. Aemilius's amazing conquest of Perseus leaves only two possibilities as a cause, two possibilities for explanation. Either Aemilius was vastly superior to his opponent, or Perseus fell by chance, by, by bad luck. Now, if Perseus did fall by chance, then Aemilius can't be angry at him, nor can Aemilius feel that he, Aemilius, has done something great in defeating him. If, if Perseus was felled by chance, then it wasn't Aemilius who was responsible. But then conversely, if Aemilius was vastly superior to Perseus, then again, Aemilius cannot think that he, Aemilius, has done something great in defeating Perseus. It'd be sort of like, uh, would, would Mike Tyson feel good about beating up a woman or something? Maybe, <laughs> but again, we'd say there's something wrong with that. Um, so again, there'd be no reason for Aemilius to get angry at poor Perseus if he was vastly superior. So in either case then, while Aemilius's pity may remain, his anger makes no sense. Because again, his amazing conquest shows that it either was luck or it was his own vast superiority that, that defeated Perseus. In either case, it doesn't, there's no reason for him to, then to be angry at Perseus fallen before him. So his anger must be quenched. It doesn't, it's not reasonable. And I think that that is what he does in his silent reflection. Again, Plutarch says that after getting angry, Instead of continuing his anger, Aemilius sent Perseus away with one of his relatives in a rather kindly way, and then retired to his tent and thought silently by himself for a long time. I think that's what he does in his silent reflections, is quenches anger. He quenches his anger by reflecting on what he hoped for. He hoped that he would be responsible for the conquest of a worthy opponent. And I think that he reflects on the impossibility of his satisfying this hope. His reflections on Perseus's defeat and the fall of Alexander's line lead him to conclude that he cannot ever claim the responsibility and the honor that he wished to claim. Because again, either considerations of his own superiority or considerations of chance stand in the way of saying that he was simply responsible for a one-to-one -one fight and, and his prevailing. So I think that, that with, the fall of, with Perseus' defeat and his reflections on the fall of Alexander's line, Amelius concludes that he can't claim that responsibility and the honor that he wished to claim. And with the sense of responsibility, there dies his hope. And with his hope, there dies his anger. Instead, he is left with pity towards Perseus and humility towards the future. So my provisional conclusion then, to, you know, to wrap this up, my provisional conclusion then is this, that neither of these speeches about fortune completely represents Amelius's own innermost reflections. Both are suited to the audience to meet the demand, to meet the needs at hand as Amelia sees them. That is, in other words, I don't see particularly good ground for accepting either view of fortune that he describes in those two speeches. 
I don't see good ground for accepting the view that fortune has complete power over human things, or the view that fortune preserves some balance between good and bad. Plutarch, Plutarch I think, offers us reasons for doubting each of those views. And these are reasons that I think are visible to Emilius as well. So the understanding that guides Emilius in his moments of success and grief is then not an assumption or opinion about, the, about fortune or about some superhuman rule of human, over human things. So again, I, I don't think that he's got some assumption about fortune and its place in human affairs that guides his, un, his, his actions in moments of success or grief. Rather, I think what guides him is the conclusion of certain reflections upon the possibility or impossibility of his own hopes, the hopes that have guided his lifelong pursuit of conquest. His reflections on these hopes teach him, I think, to be neither as sanguine as his young officers, nor as trusting as the Romans. And his abandonment of these hopes allow him to speak so artfully to both groups. Timoleon, to go back to him, Timoleon, in contrast, I think lives with these hopes, these hopes and so is vulnerable both to hubris and to despair. I think then that Plutarch does point to a certain reasoning that Emilius possesses and that Timoleon lacks. Now, Timoleon certainly has many good qualities, and Plutarch talks about them. His good habituation, his unwillingness to use his good fortune too greatly for his own advantage. These things are particularly striking, given that he grew up in a time when moral education was not so strictly attended to, Plutarch reports. Now, no doubt, Timoleon's desire to pursue the noble, or the imagination of the noble, as Plutarch puts it, keeps him from many missteps. It's not a, not a bad thing to pursue the noble or this imagination of the noble. But while Timoleon has an opinion about no nobility, he lacks the reasoning to hold down his sorrow when fortune turns against him, according to Plutarch. So I think we could ask the question, might it be that the imagination of the noble, or the opinion of the noble, that Plutarch says Timoleon had, goes hand in hand with hopes for the future. And when fortune turns, these very opinions and these very hopes prepare one for despair. Emilian, Emilius, in contrast, transforms his own experience into reasoning about his anger and his desire for conquest. This reasoning protects him against despair, but also against too great a hopefulness. Now, in conclusion then, I think that Plutarch does offer, in the life of Emilius and the comparison with Timoleon, the example of a certain reasoning by which to guide our lives. It's not a substantive knowledge of moral good or evil. It's not a knowledge, for instance, of some natural law or some similar code of absolute standards. Rather, it's a reasoning... ...upon human hopes. And it's a reasoning which Plutarch presents not as restricted to philosophers or their disciples, but as accessible to accomplished and reflective political men. Maybe, in fact, you could say that such reflections are more accessible to political men than to others. Throw that out as a possibility. And perhaps that is why Plutarch thought that these political, even warlike men, were so worthy of sustained attention, that they, or their contemplation of them, would teach us most about ourselves. Thank you.